All right, if you would, take your Bible and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're unfamiliar with the setup of the Bible, 1 Corinthians is going to be in the New Testament, uh, toward the end of the Bible a little bit. You get through those first four books of the New Testament that are called the Gospels, and then you begin to get into some letters, and it's one of those first letters there is 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be looking at that, that passage. If you have access to the Bible on the phone, certainly open up and you can, you can utilize, that, um, utilize that as well. So this morning, we're going to continue our series on the topic of holiness. And this morning, we're specifically thinking about holiness in relation to being single, to being unmarried. And so this last week, I sent out an email and put a couple of things out on social media, just asking for some feedback from those who are single, those who are unmarried. How does this season of life impact your approach to, uh, to holiness? Word to the wise, if you ask single people what they feel about being single, they're glad to tell you. Uh, and they're glad to tell you in no uncertain terms exactly how they feel about being single. And not in a bitter way, but more just in a way of, thanks for asking, now let me tell you how I feel and, and be able to, to lay it right out there. What I've tried to do is compile some of those uh, observations and resources and comments into a, a short uh, summary. And so if you have... If you normally receive the weekly emails that I send out, I will send this as an attachment this week. If you're a guest here this morning and you'd be curious to have this, or you normally don't receive those emails from me, if you'll fill out that card in the seat back in front of you and just put your name and email address on there, I'll make sure that you get added to that list and we'll, we'll get that sent out this week. Equally, I printed a couple of copies of this and put it at the coffee bar so as you walk out and you're signing up to help with the Christmas shoe boxes and things like that you can pick up a copy if you would like but we're trying to get to the point this morning of thinking about holiness and the Christian life specifically through the lens of those who are who are not married now if you're feeling a little bit sassy this morning you might be thinking well Owen you're married should you really be preaching about this are you really the best one to to be speaking to this no, I would not be if this was a seminar of good tips on how to live a single life. No, I, I shouldn't be saying anything about this. But, but a sermon is not a seminar. Uh, a sermon is not how to do this. What we're doing this morning is trying to unpack from God's word how do all of us understand holiness and the Christian life, specifically related to those who are unmarried or, or single. And so a sermon doesn't answer every question. A sermon is not just going to lay out, here's five ways to do this. What I'm trying to do is set from God's word a vision and direction for our church to begin to, to think about these things and have these conversations. Sometimes we come to a sermon and we think that the end of the sermon is the end of that topic or end of that passage. In a perfect world, I hope it's just the beginning I hope that what we talk about at 10.30 on a Sunday morning, for whatever text we're looking at or whatever topic we're talking about, that you don't get to 11.45 and say, okay, now we've got that covered, because we haven't. All we've done is we've laid out, God, according to your word, here's the direction we want to go, and then there's a thousand unanswered questions that we as a church need to answer together about where this leads us. And so, 
as a married guy, should I be telling those who are not married what to do? No, I, I shouldn't if it was just like a seminar, but that's not what we're doing this morning. We're wanting to look at God's word and say, God, lead us as a church in the direction that, that you want us to go. And we're going to use 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is going to be our base for doing that. I just want to read a couple of verses for you to get us started, and then we'll pray and, and we'll take a run at this. Chapter 7, starting in verse 6, here's what Paul says. Now is a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Father, I pray this morning, as we think about what it means to live a holy life, what it means to be a holy church, uh, separated from sin, dedicated to you, God, I pray that from your word that we would know more about what that looks like to be the family of God here. For those who are unmarried, God, that their hearts would be set on you. For those who are married, that our hearts would be set on you, that all of us are focused toward Jesus. And God, I pray this morning that as a result of this time together that we would be able to do that even better as a church. God, I pray this morning that if you would use some of this to mend relationships, God, if there is bitterness in our hearts or misunderstanding toward one another, God, that you would use the love of Christ to take that away and replace that with peace and joy. God, guide us this morning as we seek to continue to worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you just a couple of quick statistics on the screen. These come from 2016 data uh, related to Oklahoma City. Now, certainly being a southern suburb, of Oklahoma City, data is probably going to be just a little bit different for for our exact area of the of the area, but our exact area of the area that wasn't very great, but you know what I mean. Thirty um, percent in 2016 reported living alone. Seven percent reported living with non-family roommates. Twelve percent reported being a single parent family household. So you take, those are household reportings, not overall population, but, but reporting as a household. You're looking at 49% of households in 2016 in Oklahoma City related directly to this topic of how do I live as a single person, how do I live as someone who is not married in relationship to the world around me. Direct application. But you don't even have to take just the 49% there. This involves all of us. Probably the thing that I heard most from singles this last week via email or social media, um, the thing I heard the most is we don't want single to be the primary identifier for our life. We are in this together. Yes, we're single. Yes, you might be married, but we are in this together. And so it's not just this 49% up here on the screen. It is how do we live together as the people of God? Is there a time for separate ministry to unmarried or singles? Absolutely there is. 
but primarily we are gathered together as the people of God together. We're in this together. And so we think about how do we live that out. I probably tell you every other week about my connection with New Orleans. Um, you think I'm obsessive about that, and I am, but I'll just own it. So um, during our time in New Orleans, uh, when our older two kids were, were very young and before we had a, adopted Emory, God brought a young lady into our lives. Um, Amanda began to disciple this lady there at seminary, a young single lady at seminary. She began to disciple her, and we, we formed a relationship with this lady. And she became part of our family, to the point that this last week, Emery still asked us, is her last name Niece? No, baby, her, her last name is not Niece. Uh, you would have thought so because of how much time she spent with our family, but she literally became part of our family. She went on vacations with us. She did holidays with us. She cared for, um, she cared for our kids in, in so many different ways. Was it perfect all the time? No, it wasn't, but she was intimately involved with the life of our family. It wasn't, hey, here's our single friend, and she's hanging out with our family. This is us together doing life as family. And from that, I realized just how great it is when God brings our lives together with those who are not in the same season as us, who are not in the same stage as us. One of the things we try to do well at Emmaus, and we don't always do great, we try to do well, is to break down some of those silos and some of those barriers that can keep us away from one another. Like, here's the older generation, they do their thing. Here's the younger generation, they do their thing. Once again, is there a time for that? Sure there is. But there's so much that comes when you spend time with people who are not like you. There's so much that comes when you spend time with people who are not in the same situation of life as you are. I love to see people who are in different situations of life greeting one another on Sunday morning, giving hugs to somebody, somebody you're not going to spend time with any other time throughout the week, but God brings our lives together on Sunday morning. He brings our lives together as part of the church. Sometimes I'll hear this. Man, singles, those who are unmarried, I bet they would really love to attend a church with a lot of other single people there. Well, maybe, just in the sense of having those connections, but what I hear more often is people who are single or unmarried, they want to be a part of a church with healthy marriages. They want to be a part of a church where they're seeing family life worked out, not in a way that excludes them, but says, no, you're a part of who we are as a church. You're a part of our family. You're bringing us, wrapping us up together as the people of God. The greatest thing we can do for singles at Emmaus is not try to become the singles church. It's to do family and marriage really, really well. And that is a great gift to our single and unmarried friends around us that we say we uphold what it means to be a part of the people of God, we value marriage, we value family, and we value everyone together as part of this family, a part of this people of God. Okay, what does Scripture say about this? How do we, how do we orient ourselves this morning thinking about this in, in terms of Scripture? Genesis chapter 2 is a good place to start. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. This is the creation story there in Genesis 2. And so God gives Adam Eve, and they come together in verse 24 of chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become 
one flesh. This is the establishment of family, the establishment of marriage there at the time of creation, of how God is going to order creation, how he's going to continue to, to expand his work in the world. But you don't have to go very far in the Bible before you find brokenness and sin in families. Sin enters, and one of the first places you see showing up is in family and marriage. And you don't need Genesis 2 and 3 to tell you that reality, because many of you are living that reality right now. To know that when sin and brokenness hits our life, most often it comes right into the middle of our families. And you see the hurt that comes in marriages. You see the relationships between parents and their kids begin to to fall apart. You see generations divided. We see sin attacks marriages and families. And and that's exactly what happens in the scope of Scripture. But God's plan to rescue his people, don't forget, is geared around a family. That with the calling of Abram, Abram, as God begins to shape his people, he does it through the establishment of of a family. And that whole Old Testament picture, as you see that developed, then leads up to the coming of Jesus as the Messiah and the rescuer. And there's something really important that happens with the coming of Jesus. No longer is the family of God shaped primarily around a biological or ethnic connection. Now the family of God is shaped around our worship of Jesus. And this is a very important, very important transition. It's not like God leaves behind plan A to go to plan B. This is always part of God's plan. But with the coming of Jesus, it's not I'm biologically part of this family. It's I'm adopted into this family. I am brought in by God to be a part of his spiritual family based around those who worship Jesus. How do we see this? Mark chapter 3. Jesus is spending time with people. And someone asks, or Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here's my family. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And this whole idea is developed in the establishment of the church. And you see it all through the New Testament with Paul. And so brother is not just what you say when you can't remember a person's name. Uh, brother is a real relationship that we have with people around us that we care for people like family. We've been brought into the family of God, and that's established there. We're going to see it in 1 Corinthians, but it's all throughout the pages of the New Testament. Then, I want to connect last week where we talked about eternity, where we talked about the new creation with this topic of singleness this week, because look at what Jesus does in Matthew 22. This is a Sometimes overlooked passage, but this is very important, and, and it may go against some of the things you've even believed up to, this, up to this point. Matthew 22. The same day, Sadducees came to Jesus. Sadducees are those who say there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying this. Verse 24. Here's what this said. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap him at this point. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. Quick, quick, chase the squirrel moment. Anybody ever see Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the old, the old movie? Man, my parents used to make us watch that all the time. So I can't read this verse without thinking of seven brothers. If you don't know what I'm talking about, 
count yourself blessed and keep going. So, uh, um, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them, the woman died. In the resurrection, now they're being sarcastic at this point. They actually don't believe in the resurrection. They're trying to make Jesus' ministry and life look foolish at this point. So they're, they're being sarcastic. In the resurrection, of the seven, whose wife will she be? So this, this lady was connected to seven men throughout her life. So in eternity, in the resurrection, which one is she actually going to be with, Jesus? Can't you see how foolish eternity is, Jesus? It's, it's just about this world. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, the new creation, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, in the new creation, will there be something particular, something special about our relationships, relationship to us an earthly spouse or an earthly family member yeah i think there will be there'll, there'll be something about that but it will not be the exclusive relationship of marriage as we live it out now in this world that type of relationship is for this world for purposes god has for his people right now but in the resurrection they will neither marry nor be given to marriage but are like angels in heaven i, I say this next part so carefully because in times of grief and pain, I know we don't always mean exactly what we say, so hear me pastorally at this point, not legalistically. When a person dies, they don't become an angel. So sometimes we say someone died and God received another angel. That doesn't match what we find in the, in the Bible. God's creation of angels is a very particular creation of angels for his purposes. We don't become angels at the point of death but like angels in particular ways, in the sense that we are not gathered together in marriage uh, in, in all of eternity. That's a relationship just for, for this world. So let me summarize it in this way. I think this is really helpful. Singleness in Scripture works like this. In creation, you're not going to find singleness because God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. He's never going to get his clothes to match. He's never going to be able to find his keys. It's not good that he would be alone. So he finds a helper. He not finds a helper. He's given a helper. So there's no singleness in creation. God brings Adam and Eve together. It's the establishment of marriage and family. In the Old Testament, singleness is uncommon and generally considered undesirable. Now, there's a few exceptions to this, but overwhelmingly in the Old Testament, you see the establishment of marriage, and, and so people are driven in that direction. In the New Testament, with the coming of Jesus, singleness is seen as an advantage for kingdom ministry, and key people were single, like Jesus. Um, so if marriage is necessary to live out the life that God has called us to live, it's pretty awkward when your Savior was single, was not married. Um, no matter what the random book at Barnes & Noble you find says that, that Jesus was married, he, he was not. Paul, we're going to talk about it in a couple of minutes. Paul was not married. In eternity, singleness will be the reality for everybody, for all of us. And it's at this moment you have to look to all your single friends and learn from them that singleness does not mean lonely. 
And singleness does not mean I can't fully live out the life that God has called me to live. In some sense, in some sense, those who are single and unmarried have a head start on the reality of eternal kingdom living. And so we have something to live, to, to learn from one another in, in this reality. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 7 and see the way that this has worked out. What does it mean to live a single life in a way that honors the Lord? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let me just tell you ahead of time, these are hard, hard verses. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right, well, that'll get our attention uh, from, from the very beginning. What, what's Paul mean there? This is him responding to a slogan or a quote that has come to him from the church at Corinth. Remember, Paul is writing in response to things that he is hearing from this church. And so one of the things that they're talking about in their church is that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, part of this slogan, excuse me, part of this slogan might actually be coming from something very similar to what Paul had taught them when he first went to Corinth, that he had taught them something like this. And so they have what happens so often in Paul's ministry is he teaches something and then the people take it and take it to an extreme that he never intended. And so it seems like that is what has happened here. And so what has happened is married couples, the wife is coming to the husband and saying, I know we're married and all. Paul said, though, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with his wife. I think we're probably finished. Um, yeah, if we're really spiritual as a couple, we, we shouldn't be having sexual relations. Now, as the husband in that moment, how's the husband going to respond? Well, if, if, if that's your idea of spiritual, um, I'm not so sure I'm interested in being spiritual. Like, that's not really what I, what I signed up for here. And so it's causing tension in the church. It's causing tension in their families. Look what happens in verse 2. In verse 2, Paul says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is going to use a strategy throughout these verses, and you have to follow this to see what Paul is doing. He uses this yes but strategy. Yes, this is true, but make sure you don't miss this point. Yes, I hear you're saying this, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, it is good that man and wife would come together, that this is part of God's plan. This is part of God's direction for his people. You go down to verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now it's a concession, not a command, I say this. So Paul's not being legalistic. He's not being overbearing with this. He realizes that there's a lot of nuance here. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, there's a little bit of controversy built around the idea of gift here. Is it the case that every person who is single right now, you would say, I have the gift of singleness? I don't know, to be honest. That's a really, that's a really tricky uh, perspective because you might say, well, is this my gift to be single? Yeah, it is for right now, but I don't know that it will be forever. 
Is this just a gift for this season? Or is Paul saying, I have a particular gift, a particular calling to a single celibate life that not everyone, even among singles, is going to have? Whichever extreme Paul is going to here with the word for gift, the main point that he is making is that God gives grace and strength for whatever season you're in. And so if this is a gift that Paul has for all of his life, or if he sees it as just that uh, season or stage of singleness, either way, he wants you to know the way you live this out is through God's power, the power of God's Spirit at work in in your life. In verse 8, Paul says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now that first word up there, unmarried, is the word that's often used for a widower. And so Paul may be talking here, he says, to the widowers and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single. Which means that Paul may be in the category of widower. Paul may have been married before, and his wife passed away, and now he's single. Because if that word means widower, Paul is putting himself in that category Or it may just be the general word for unmarried. It can work either way. So there's a possibility that Paul was married, his spouse died, and then he was called to this life of missions and ministry of expanding the church. So there's a connection there. Verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, speaking of widows and widowers, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the exact argument that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 5 for widows. For a young widow, it is good for her to marry, especially if it means the establishment of a family. If if the passions and the desire for a spouse are there, it is okay for that person to pursue marriage. Verse 10. Oh, actually, not verse 10. Skip down. Verse 10 is for next week. Skip down to verse 25. We're going to take a big jump. Those middle verses are next week. Verse 25, here's another category. Paul addresses all kinds of categories in in this chapter. Now concerning the betrothed. Betrothed there is a word that can mean engaged. It can mean betrothed. It can also just be the general word for virgin. So Paul could be talking specifically about all virgins, or he could be talking specifically to those who are betrothed, who who are engaged. He says, I have no particular command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Here's his judgment, verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. We don't know the details, but there is something happening in Corinth that is causing extreme distress in the church or in the area where the people live. And Paul says, because of what is going on here, it would be best right now that if you are not married, that you stay unmarried. Now, he's not going to completely prohibit marriage. Far from it. He's, he's going to, in fact, encourage it. But he says right here, there may be reasons that you would not marry. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? In other words, are you, are you engaged to a wife? Do not seek to be free. So you don't have to immediately break off that engagement. If you're, if you're bound, it's okay to pursue that. But are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Maybe now is not the time to pursue that. Verse 28. If you do mar- marry, 
you have not sinned. Here Paul goes, yes, but. Yes, it would be better not to marry, but if you do marry, you haven't sinned. It's okay to pursue that. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Okay, couples, do not look at your spouse right now to call them the worldly trouble that comes with, comes with marriage. Paul is simply saying that if you marry, there are challenges that come with that. When we do premarital counseling with couples that are preparing to get married, what challenges are you worried about for your marriage? The couple that says, I don't see any challenges for us. I, I think we're going we're gonna to do great. That's the one that I book for marital counseling six months into, uh, into marriage. Like, oh yeah, they'll be back because <laughs> they don't see any problems coming, which means, oh my goodness. Um, Paul says with marriage is going to come challenges, is going to come troubles, and because of the distress of this world, I would spare you of that. Uh, Sam, Sam Alberry, who I've listed multiple times on my resource sheet, and I just cannot speak highly enough of, of Sam's ministry. He's a, he's a young, single man um, who also struggles with same-sex attraction. He writes a lot about that, but he writes about how to live as a follower of Jesus, as a young, single man. Brilliant theologian, just, just an incredible minister. Um, Sam talks about when he goes and and spends time with other families who have kids, um, and then he, he cares for the family, and he goes home, it's at those times that he's reminded why singleness is a gift. <laughs> he says, I get to go and care for the kids, and then I leave them there, and I go back to my house by myself. And uh, singleness feels like a gift at that time. And so you, you have this reality that with marriage comes worldly trouble. With marriage comes trials. And so Paul says there in verse 29, this is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. The reality that the coming of Christ could be at any time, that we live in a world that is temporary, this appointed time is very short. So from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now does that mean to reject your spouse? Absolutely it doesn't mean that. What it means is we realize what we saw earlier, that marriage is a temporary reality, temporary to this world reality. And so we are not so preoccupied with marriage that it becomes our idol, that it becomes our God. Is it a good gift? Absolutely it is, and we're going to say everything we can about that next week. It is a great gift, a picture of the gospel, but it's not our idol. It's not our God. Ultimately, it too is a temporary reality. And so Paul says, you live as if you had none. Verse 30, those who mourn, as, those they were not, as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice, as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy, as though they had no goods. Everything in verse 30 is a temporary reality. Mourning, rejoicing, purchasing goods, all those are for this world, they're temporary realities. Verse 31, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. That's your underlying phrase in, in this chapter. The reason Paul is so focused on singleness and holiness is because he wants to make sure that we are not ultimately living for the things of this world. That when our eyes are simply set on what we can do right now, it will take us away from the things of the Lord. 
And so he says, the things of this world are temporary. They are passing away. So verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Just a quick comment on verse 33 there. Guys, what that verse says, if you're going to get married, you can't continue to act like a single man. I see guys who get married and then the first year or two of their marriage is a disaster because they continue to operate as if they were a single guy. They just happen to gain a housemate. That's not how marriage works. Paul says if you're going to pursue marriage, if you're going to be with a man in marriage, you're going to have, if husband and wife are brought together, there's going to be loyalties to, to please and to care for one another. Um, verse 34, his interests are divided. Verse 34 goes on, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order, good order in your family and in the church, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, in other words, to not be married, he will do well. Verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Is it wrong to be married? Absolutely it's not. No, there's no sin in marriage. In fact, it's a great thing. But there are great advantages, Paul says, to living a single life, to remaining unmarried. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. So that marriage only established with someone who is a follower of Jesus. Yet in my judgment, verse 40, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God for this. All right, what do we take from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to understand Paul's points about holiness in the Christian life, and specifically for those who are single and those who are married, how we relate to the people around us? If you got that little half sheet of paper as you were coming in, I think I've listed about five main things on there. Number one, our core identity is not single or married. Our core identity is in Christ. When my wife spends time with younger ladies doing discipleship, she spends a majority of her time talking about their identity. That their primary identity as a young woman, or if you're spending, if you're a man, an older man spending time discipling a younger man, your primary identity is in Christ. Christ is my stability. Christ is the hope of my life. Christ is the one that I'm living for. And so when that identity is strong, then you're in a position that if marriage comes along, it's not two half people trying to make each other whole. 
It's two whole people coming together to display the gospel. And so once we realize that single and married is not the primary descriptor for our life, the primary descriptor is Christ, that he is our hope, he is our life. Now within that, when you have that identity, and when you have that deep contentment that comes from Christ, what do you do with those desires that are still there? Because just because you're a single person and you have a strong identity in Christ doesn't mean the desires for marriage automatically go away. In fact, they probably will still be there. And so what you find yourself doing is living in this Christian tension between I know my identity is in Christ, but it is not wrong to have these good desires that God has placed in my life. And so I learned to live with both of those at work. Here's the way I would say it, and it feels a little cheesy, but it's, the, it's what I came up with. For a Christian who is single, who has a strong identity in Christ, they can have a desire for marriage, but they're not desperate for marriage. Desires are good and are given to us by God. We have those desires. God, I desire this. I would love to have this be part of my life, but I'm not desperate for it. So my identity is not wrapped up in it. It's not going to consume my life to the point that it takes me away from you, but I, I acknowledge that this is, this is a desire. Look at this next quote and see if it, it helps a little bit. That verse 35 about having undivided attention to the Lord. While you may never be content with your singleness, you can know God's joy in your singleness. You shouldn't feel guilty that you still desire marriage. In fact, it should be for you and those around you a parable of the holy discontentment we should all feel until Christ returns. So this idea of I desire something, but I'm not desperate for it. I know my core identity is in Christ. If you are here this morning, and your core identity is wrapped up in your marriage, or your core identity is wrapped up in your kids, or your core identity is wrapped up in your job, in the same way that we would say to someone who is single, look to Christ. That marriage, those kids, that job, those possessions, none of that is something that we build our lives upon. It's Christ. And so we do everything we can to look to him. Number two, realize that marriage doesn't automatically fix or remove sin problems. To which you say, no kidding, Owen. <laughs> That's the obvious one. But here's the thing. Sometimes we think, man, if, if I was just married, I wouldn't struggle with X. And so from single guys who I spend time with talking to, man, if I was just married, I wouldn't struggle with these sexual temptations anymore. Oh, brother, <laughs> how I wish I could tell you that that was the case. Um, it's not, though. If I was just married, I wouldn't struggle with loneliness anymore. Can I tell you, I talk to a lot of lonely married people that just because you're married doesn't mean that all of that will go away. If I was married, then I would have this intimate relationship with somebody else. Just because you're married doesn't mean that intimacy is at the core of it. Just getting married doesn't fix all these challenges or problems that we struggle with. It's possible 
to have sex without intimacy just as it's possible to have intimacy without sex. That those two are not automatically related. That at our core desire to have those relationships, those friendships, that God gives us those in all seasons of life. And so don't just think, if I can change my circumstances, then I would automatically be holy. Holiness is not tied primarily to our circumstances in life. It's tied to our relationship with the Lord. And so we start there. Number three, holiness is related to this question of how do I know God's will for my life? Pastor, I've been single for a long time. It's been a while since my husband died or it's been a while since that divorce happened. I've been single. I'm trying to know God's will for my life. How do I know God's will about whether I'm supposed to marry this person? How do I know God's will if I'm supposed to pursue this relationship? It's at this point we have to remember how the New Testament deals with God's will. We think, what's God's will for my life? And we focus primarily on these small life decisions. When the Bible talks about God's will for our life, it talks about how we live our life no matter the situation. Let me show you what, the, what I mean by this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Pastor, how can I know God's will for my life? Am I supposed to marry this person or not? Are you pursuing holiness? The best way that you can know God's will for your life is to be faithful right where he's placed you and to pursue holiness. If you're trying to figure out if you should take another job, how do you figure out if you should take another job? How do I know God's will for my job? Am I supposed to change jobs, stay where I am? Am I supposed to move somewhere else, stay where I am? How do I know God's will? Are you completely faithful where God has placed you and are you pursuing holiness before the Lord? If we get those two things right, so many times the small questions about specific life decisions begin to fall into place. How do I pursue holiness? God's Spirit is changing me from the inside out. My life is being transformed. I'm in God's Word. Just a small side statement that came to me from another single this week. If you're going to have a singles Bible study, do Bible study. Don't make it a cover for matchmaking. <laughs> if it's Bible study, do Bible study. If you're going to provide opportunities for matchmaking, provide opportunities for matchmaking. Don't, don't confuse the two. Do, do one or the other. Make sure you know what you're doing there. And the church. The gift of the church, which is number four on your notes. Holiness for those who are single and those who are married comes when we embrace the gift of the church. When you go home by yourself, that can be fun for a while, but loneliness can begin to set, set in. You think about someone who is a widow, and church attendance for that person is not just checking off a box, it's they need to see people that they love and they know and they care about. The gift of the church is that we know one another, we listen to one another, we trust one another, Number one on there is, or 4A, treat people as people. A single person does not want to be your project. <laughs> they want to be treated as a person, that you love them and you know them and you care for them. They're not your project to, to, to match up with someone. 
just love them and care for them as a person. Number two, we listen, we build trust, we're in this together. I was so convicted personally this last week when I asked singles to tell me how they felt about that, to say, Owen, why did you just now ask somebody that? Like, people want to share what's going on in their life. Just ask people, how does this make you feel? What are you struggling with? What could we do to serve you better? As a church, when we ask one of those questions, we break down so many walls. And people say, oh, they do want to know how I feel. They do care about me. Next, minister with and to one another. Okay, I'm going to ask you to put on your most mature hat right now. We're not going to be eighth graders. Sorry, eighth graders. Okay, we're going to be. We're going to. We're going to all be mature here for a moment. All right. First Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse twenty. Minister with and to one another. People said, "Owen, oh, you're doing a, city, a series on holiness. When do we get this verse?" Ah, here it comes. You got it. So Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Oh, greetings again. Apparently, greet one another. With a holy kiss. People have been waiting for this in the holiness series. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What does this mean? It means that when we are brought together as the church, as the people of God, there's incredible ministry in culturally appropriate, God-honoring physical touch. Culturally appropriate, God-honoring physical touch. Something we forget, but when, when you are single, when you're not married, one of the things that you can miss in your life during the week is just the gift of physical touch. A hug, someone just to pat you on the back, someone to come along and hold your hand, and that physical touch that says you are cared for, you're respected, you're safe, it's something that you're able to experience in the gift of a church. And it's particularly beautiful. And, and once again, we have our mature hats on. But when it is someone who is in a marriage, expressing that touch to someone who is a brother or sister in Christ, but who is single. And where that single person says, that was God-honoring, it was culturally appropriate, I knew that I was respected and loved. They just wanted to say, I love you and I care for you. That's one of the ways we minister. Why? Is there a place for online church? Is there a place for that? Yeah, there probably is to some degree. What do you miss with online church or where you just watch a service online? No one hugs your neck. No one comes along, gives you a fist bump. No one comes along and says, man, I really care about you. It's good to see you. That's the part of ministry that you miss and that, and that gift that God brings us. All right, in, in light of time, let's skip to the last one. Let's jump down. Number five, what do we learn from 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, we all need an eternal perspective and an urgent mission. We all need an eternal perspective and an urgent mission. And as married couples, as families, we can learn this in a really powerful way from our unmarried and single friends. Matthew 6.33, seek first before you seek a spouse, before you seek a job, before you seek anything, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We need people like Lottie Moon, who was one of the first females in the American South to earn an advanced degree. 
Lottie Moon topped out in her life at four feet, three inches tall. Um, but she was an incredible missionary for the gospel. Went to China, spread the gospel, single her entire life. We need people like Jack, who was a part of the church that I pastored in Mississippi. Jack was single his whole life. Amazing man. When I knew him, he was in his late 60s, early 70s. I asked Jack, I said, Jack, what led you to lifelong singleness? Jack's answer, and he meant every word of it, I wanted to devote my life to the church. I didn't want anything to get in the way of it. Jack was there every time the doors were open. Actually, Jack opened the doors to let himself in. He was there constantly because he wanted to give himself to the mission of the church. Does that mean every person will be like Lottie Moon and every person will be like Jack? No, it doesn't. But it means they are incredible gifts to the people of God. They are incredible gifts to the kingdom of God. What do we do as a church moving forward? We remember we're all in this together. We need one another. And we are driven by an eternal perspective and an urgent mission. What we're going to do at this point is I want to pray for us and after I pray for us, we're going to stand up and we're going to sing a final song together. Offering plates are going to come around. If you've got that card with your email address on, you want the email that I send out with the attachment, put that card in there. If you have your offering, you'll be able to give to that during this final song. If you are hurting, if maybe you're in a situation of singleness or, or maybe you know someone who's single and they're hurting and you just need somebody to pray for you, we want to be able to do that. However we can minister to one another during this time, we want to do that. Let me pray for us. We're going to stand up and sing. God, thanks for your kindness and grace and faithfulness to us. God, thank you for a church like Emmaus that tries to knock down so many barriers that would keep us apart from one another. God, I pray that through your word, through the ministry of the church, that you would remove bitterness and hurt from our hearts. God, I pray that as a result of this morning that there would be singles who would pursue marriage. That this is not just about you have to be single to follow the Lord. It's about when you find yourself unmarried or single, how am I going to live? God, I pray that Emmaus would be a place where marriage and family is upheld as a gift to our single friends. And God, those who are single and unmarried that they would be a picture to us of what it means to live totally devoted to you and to your name. We are gathered here only because of the name of Jesus. And so, Father, we give ourselves to him right now. In Jesus' name, amen.